great pleasure to welcome Kia Nobre uh, to NDCN. Uh, Kia is the uh, holds a, a relatively new chair, although she's been a professor for some time in Oxford, uh, of translational cognitive neuroscience. Jointly, as you can see, between experimental psychology, where she spent quite a number of years, and psychiatry to bridge the gap, as we are trying to do with a number of uh, uh, physicians. Uh, and she's also um, a professorial fellow at uh, St. Catherine's uh, College. So just a, a few words uh, so that uh, I think it's always uh, valuable to know the background of the speakers to inspire you to great things. So Kia was brought up in uh, Brazil and then moved to the States and did a BA at uh, Williams College, uh, majoring in neuroscience. And then she went to Yale uh, for her PhD and started using intracranial and non-invasive electrophysiological techniques to study the human brain, and particularly in relation to language and attention. Then she uh, did a postdoc with at Yale and then at Harvard. And then in 1994, so what, that's almost over 20 years ago, she moved to uh, Oxford to experimental psychology on a McDonald Cube lectureship, and then continued much of uh, her research interests in attention and many other uh, areas. And then, as I say, a couple of years ago, she took up this new uh, chair between the two departments. And um, particularly, that was as a result of about five years ago taking over the, uh, the May, which was uh, housed over at uh, uh, the Warnford Hospital in the psychiatric hospital uh, and setting up the, uh, the new Oxford Centre for Human Brain Activity. So, you know, we now have May over there. And in fact, they're building, a, uh, they're building at the site now to put in an MR machine. But it links up very much with Thinrip on this site. And the sort of, you know, the two together allow you to look both spatially and temporally at uh, neural activity. Um, so uh, she's a fellow of the uh, British Academy, which is an unusual thing for uh, a cognitive neuroscience since the, uh, the Academy is the uh, national body for the humanities and social sciences. So uh, uh, she uh, has many different uh, uh, areas that she has an interest. And she thought that she, she changed the title slightly of, of talk to the scope of attention to so give a more broader uh, based uh, uh, lecture or seminar. Yeah. Kia, well. Thanks so much, Chris. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I thought it was like the end of the year, everyone's uh, probably doing admissions or like just thinking about, you know, having some champagne or, or fizzy or stuff. So I thought I would go for a slightly broader, lighter talk that might actually sort of cover some of the issues um, in uh, the research on attention. Okay, so um, to start off, um, I, w I wanted to sort of start off with something that may fail, which is uh, just an illustration of um, how our perception, unlike our intuition, that you know we ha we apprehend everything that's going on around us, and that we can so we are everything that's happening around us is available to us, and it's kind of unraveling in these like rich four-dimensional sort of I don't know canvas of life. Actually, what we pick out from the environment is extremely limited. So I have a video which wouldn't embed here, so I've, I'm going to try to show it uh, separately just to make. Um, the point of how limited our perception is. So I'm gonna, it's probably gonna start playing automatically. This is just a video of just a, um, a scene for six seconds. Okay, so just see what you can see in this scene. This is uh, Nick from Old Oliva, a great um, 
neuroscientist at MIT. So hopefully this will, will work. So did anyone notice anything happen in this video or anything change? So basically, okay, some colors changed. So basically, everything in this video except for the white car changed in those six seconds. Okay. So I'll just, uh, I'll try. To, I don't know if this will work. I'll try to play around here, but uh, sorry. You know, so I'll, I'll know. So like, this woman wasn't there. Uh, this bar wasn't here. This was a different building. This whole area here was also different. <laughs> So this, I think, just gives you a sense of, you know, how we're fooled by our senses all the time. So maybe, um, maybe this doesn't work so well. Oh, dear. Um, but if you press play, you won't see it. Let me, let's, 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 okay, let's start from the beginning. I know. Uh, Nick told me that Chris can't tolerate any AV glitches, but maybe he'll be... No, it's if he does it. Okay, okay. Okay, well, now, now you're primed, okay? Yeah, okay. So if we, if we look, uh, maybe this will work a bit better now. Um, no, this is really lame here. What is this? Okay, anyway. Hopefully you believe me. You can look it up, Odoliva. <coughs> yeah. So basically the only thing that stayed static here was this car and everything else, like the entire buildings and bars and people and these guys all emerged. And this is all happening over six seconds. So it's not even like, oh, the, it's very slow and gradual and the system is not meant to pick this up. So it really just shows that, you know, we really only kind of pick up the things that we're focusing on um, at any given time that happen to be important to us. Um, and so there are lots of beautiful illustrations like this out there. So let me just get back to this guy here. Um, and one point that I'd like to make is that these are not just kind of laboratory weird quirky things and it's not the case that, you know, we can show these illusions and they don't actually matter. So um, one of the projects that uh, I'm involved in at the moment is with people here at, um, in clinical neuroscience with Helen Hyam and, and Paul Dreeve, who's a graduate student co-supervised by us, to look at the um, role of how these limitations in our perception actually can have real consequences to, in situations where there is a lot of competition among stimulation going on, many things that need to be monitored and attended to at any given time. And um, this is something that people haven't really taken into account, is like the actual like very basic limitations in our perception as a major source, for example, of medical errors in sort of the surgery room, for example. So Paul and Helen so runs the Oxford Simulation Unit, and uh, Paul is doing his, he's a medic, he's doing his, his defil there. And what he did is he actually created a, a video um, of a simulation. It lasts about uh, eight, eight seconds or so, um, maybe a little bit longer, where in this video he embeds several different changes that occur when he pans out and back in the camera, but some of them which just actually just happen as the film is ro rolling. Um, and he, has, he asks 
um, complete novices, graduate, uh, medical students, people with uh, expertise in simulation who've done the course, and actually real experts, including the people who actually teach the simulation course to observe this thing and to note in the end, you know, all the things, all the changes that any, they, they're supposed to watch it and to judge the quality of the simulation and to see if anything's going wrong. Then they're, they're asked, you know, what did you see? Did you see anything happen? And they just get an informal debrief. And then they also have a formal set of questions, including things that did happen and things that didn't happen uh, to get a sense of what people pick up on in this, in this situation. So, what here is just like another snapshot that shows several of the changes that are, are embedded in this video, some of which are completely trivial to like the health of the of, of like the, the patient here in this case uh, this fancy dummy, like changing of the color of the swapping hats, uh, and then swapping individuals like people swapping, um, you know, which are big changes, but you know it wouldn't really necessarily kill your 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 patient. But then there are things like you know, changing the airway device and, and actually the whole oxygen tube becoming disconnected, uh, which would have actually caused the death of the, of the patient. And uh, these numbers here are the proportion of people who participated who are at the basic, advanced, and expert level who actually notice these changes. So you know, if you want to be an optimist, there is room for optimism. So training helps you notice some of the um, important <coughs> clinical events that are taking place. But on the negative side, you know, you only have only a, a small minority of people who are actually noticing when the entire oxygen is disconnecting, making noise uh, and, um, in, in this situation. So Paul, now uh, very aware that, you know, it's going to take a lot to kind of make, especially medics, understand that they are, you know, limited human beings like anybody else. Um, he, he is aware that um, you know maybe just this illustration of in a uh, film mode or watching a video of a simulation is not going to be that convincing to people. So he's actually now running this uh, live with the people in the simulation team, uh, and they are introducing all these mishaps and things in a very well controlled way um, in situations where people are under stress. So they're also having to help and do things, or when they're kind of not so engaged to see the extent to which people are missing these events that take place. So I think nowadays we, we, we sort of take this illusory veracity of our perception so for granted that we don't actually realize that perception is this, sorry, that attention is this really important determinant of what actually comes into our awareness at any given time and that it is very flexible um, and very selective. So, um, yeah. Okay, so this, this whole field of how we deal with our perceptual limitations and how we're able to nevertheless use our perception well in order to guide our behavior, uh, our adaptive behavior in the world, comes kind of under the remit of attention. And this is the area, as Chris said, that I've, one of the areas that I've done most of my work on. And uh, when we think of uh, perception and our limitations, sometimes people have this, this kind of very, well, I think naive, but it is a, it is a prevalent uh, and dominant view in the, in the field, which is that somehow we just have li uh, capacity limits in our perception. You know, there's just, we just have, we have limited resources, and this limits our, um, our capacity um, in order to sort of take in everything that's happening in the world. And that's probably true at some kind of um, descriptive high level, but it doesn't really explain what do you really mean by these resources. Do you have some amount of firing power in the brain or 
some kind of amount of metabolic juice or currency or synaptic activity. And I think that's not a really useful way to think about what causes the limitations in our perception. And instead, it's probably better to think of the way the perceptual systems are organized in the brain and what kind of challenges does this pose for the brain to extract information to guide uh, adaptive behavior. And I think when we think of that, I think we need to consider that actually um, our perceptual systems are highly competitive. And by this, I mean that as you go up in the sort of different sensory areas, the catchment areas of neurons, the receptive fields are very large, so several stimuli are all impinging on the same neuron. And the neur like if the neuron were just to fire an average to all of those things, it would be sending out no information. So there's this competitive process that goes by as to which stimulus is going to come to really dominate the signaling that that neuron will pass along to other areas. So this is, we know that this is the case in, in perception, in visual system, it's been studied extensively. And then of course we're de dealing with biological units, neurons, which are a little bit noisy. Then we know that coding across neurons is highly distributed, so it's not like, you know, we don't, most of us don't believe that we do have actually one grandmother cell and one great aunt cell and one, you know, uh, um, Chris Kringle cell or whatever. So we have this highly distributed um, coding of information in cells within regional ensembles, but also across different brain areas. And all of this then needs to be integrated. And then there's lots of things we could do with those integrated signals, many different types of actions we could perform. We could put things down into different memory systems for later action. So I think that is what the system, what the system has to solve. It's like trying to um, select those few things that are, can be integrated and then can guide action. I think that's a better way to think about it. And we don't have to pose these like mysterious resources uh, kind of um, um, concepts. So that's the problem for perception. And attention is usually sort of um, given as kind of a, a type or a very important element of the solution for perception. And um, attention is one of those things that, you know, is a, is a word that's also used in folk psychology. So people have different ideas in their mind of what, what do you mean by this, including scholars of attention. But if you were to sort of really distill and extract like the element of attention that most of us agree in the field, I would say that um, it's this idea of prioritizing and selecting information that's relevant and, and getting rid of stuff that's irrelevant in order to guide adaptive behavior. And this, according to sort of the, the standard uh, model of attention, this is like just the really bare bones of it, the very um, basic idea is that rather than just taking in this whole big rich canvas that's coming at, coming at you at any given time, we have a set of biases that are operating to pick out those things that might be important or relevant to us at any given time. Some of these biases are just things that evolution um, has learned over the, the years uh, to extract. Uh, so it's just things that the, the perceptual systems are already prone to picking up. So very bright, loud, things that are physically salient, um, moving, stimuli, high contrast things. So those will already have an edge within this competitive process. But also very importantly, and to me most interestingly, also top-down biases. These, you're, you have the ability to actually focus on different things according to what you're doing now, according to your goals. So rather than taking this whole world, you might sort of pick up a focus on a particular location or on some features 
to pick out some particular objects, like if you lost your dog, for example, you might be sort of tuned into dog-relevant uh, features, and these things can happen, you know, quite um, automatically and, and simply um, as part of the, the way the information processing works. So this, in this kind of standard <coughs> model, I would say that these anticipatory biases are really the, doing the core work of ensuring that we are, that our perception is adaptive to our goals. Um, and the, and the, according to the standard model, these, um, the way these happen is that we have these goal-related representations which are short, stored in our short-term or working memory, and they actually are able to nudge or to prioritize or pre-activate neurons with the right receptive field properties in order to pick out those events more readily as the information is coming through the system. So this is kind of, you know, maybe what you might read about in the textbook, and I think this is a, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a coherent story, and we actually know a lot about this standard model of attention, and I'm just using here just very selfishly some illustrations from my own work, but they just really uh, examples, I could have, you know, I could pick out millions of other examples from other people's work uh, sort of supporting this standard model of attention. So, for example, we know that there's like a distributed model, the distributed system of brain areas which are able to sort of prioritize things at least spatially, um, uh, which carry information about, you know, our goals and our motivations, and we can see that uh, this is all human work, um, and all of this is underpinned by really beautiful work on animal models looking at the cellular aspects of this. But for example, if you're just recording activity from the human brain, you can see, like if you're recording event-related potentials, that the very first visual responses that you measure are uh, significantly different uh, depending on whether that same exact item that's stimulating your eyeballs and the brain, presumably, reaching the brain exactly the same way is relevant or irrelevant to you. So you have this kind of suppression of irrelevant, relative suppression of irrelevant things, relative enhancement of relevant things. We have, um, so this is work, goes back to like Steve Hilliard's work in the 70s. Um, then sort of building on Corbetta's work, like in 93 was the original, yeah, 93 was the original demonstration of this, and then we were able to show this at the individual level in human brain, and to show, um, yeah, so we, people have been able to image using uh, initially positron emission tomography and then MRI, uh, the, this network that had been proposed uh, as this top-down source of attentional biasing. And also we were the first to note that this network actually uh, is very, very similar uh, to the eye movement network, which Chris has studied quite a lot, uh, um, suggesting that actually um, there's a lot of functional correspondence between your ability to move attention around in space and all the computations that you actually need to move your eyeballs around in space, your gaze, uh, so that these, this system is able to extract spatial positions of relevant things, uh, update spatial positions as you move through space and be able to shift between those, both as in using it in a completely cognitive way so you can move your attention around without moving your eyes around, but also it obviously does, you can also use the system for ocular motor control. So showing that these cognitive systems build on um, these more elemental sensory motor networks. They're not identical, of course, because you know there is a difference between moving your eyes around and moving attention around, but they have a common set of computations. Then the idea is that this network is kind of exerting influence in sensory systems to uh, achieve this kind of modulation. And we and others have shown this, so like with Matthew Rushworth's group, Matthew and I, we um, sort of 
combine TMS by stimulating frontal eye fields in this part of the network and then recording visual activity showing modulations of that. And other groups like John Driver's group have done that with TMS and MRI in London. So there's again a whole bunch of um, studies there. And then we can also watch the brain in this kind of moment of anticipation, this kind of top-down, like just one bias moment. And in the human brain, one of the most uh, prevalent markers of that is that you have a change of oscillatory alpha activity in the alpha band when you're orienting attention in space. So that the alpha, which is thought to be a suppressive inhibitory rhythm in the brain, goes down or is desynchronized in the areas of the brain that are supposed to be processing in information. So, like for example, um, in a study we did, we, we gave cues that indicated how likely your target was going to be like on the, uh, on the left side, so 60% likely, 80% likely, 100% likely, and you can see the alpha band here depicted in blue just going down, um, blue, more blue is, is, is lower, the more certainty you have about where your target is. This is before any target happens, it's just that state of expectation. And you can also use these uh, multivariate analyses in MRI to show that the actual pattern of activity in um, object-related areas during this moment of expectation, during when you're expecting or waiting to perceive this, your target, is the same pattern as if you were seeing the target itself. And this suggests that you have this nudging or this activation of these cells before the events even happen to put throughputs that uh, signal as it comes through. So this is just to say this is like a good story. We all agree with this. I, uh, my group has contributed a lot to this, but loads of other people have also uh, worked on this. And having sort of been a big player in sort of establishing the standard mo model, you know, as you get on in life, you realize, well, you know, that's a good model, but doesn't really start to tell the full story. So the talk today is actually about how we go beyond this standard model of attention. So this standard model is already interesting in the sense that it already takes us away from our intuition, which is that, you know, everything comes out from it, we just take it all in that we start from outside sensation, we pick up some features, we put them together into some objects, we context, we put objects into these contexts and we put them in memory and then we can maybe store some long-term memories from it. It already shows us that that's not really how it works. Actually, these goal-related things in short-term memory also feeding back and nudging and changing the whole input pickup of information. And this is, um, if you, want to, if you ever want any like really great insights into attention, you just have to go back before we could actually do any of this empirical stuff and read William James. And he talks about this as this organic adjustment or what he calls ideational preparation or pre-perception as being concerned in, you know, in perception in all attentive acts. So we're going to leave this standard model behind now for a moment. Um, not saying that it's wrong, but we're going to try to extend on it. And um, I'm going to try to argue that actually we have different slates on which attention can operate. It's not all happening within perception, or not even just within perception action cycle. Um, that we don't just have um, receptive field-related biases, and that our biases don't just come from short-term memory. So in each of these, I'm just going to really, they're just cameos. I'm not going to do anything very extensive in any field. We're just going to give you these examples in these three different areas. OK, so moving beyond perception, Again, if you go back to James, the most cliché and oft-quoted line of his is the one that he opens the attention chapter with, which is like, you know, everybody knows what attention is. It is the taking possession by the mind in one of, out of what may seem several simultaneously possible objects, but he also says, or trains of thought. 
So it's not just you're just kind of applying all this prioritization and modulation on the incoming sensory perception, but maybe we're also doing the same things in the context of our memory and our short-term memories. Um, so we became interested in having a look at this. And when we, w when we went to visit this, the standard view of short-term memory was one that was extremely inflexible. This is a dogma textbook view of short-term memory, like up till 2000, for example. And it, and it basically says, you know, short-term memory is already the product of selection on stuff. You pick up just a few things, you hold like four things in mind, you have access to them um, completely, you just have to search exhaustively through them. And if you use cues or something, it just doesn't work to optimize things. Um, and we just thought that that couldn't be right. Uh, so we revisited um, this question, which was really a taboo. It's really funny, because when I, when I used to speak to psychologists about this, I mean, I would kind of get yelled down by them. Now they're all working on this area. Uh, but everybody else is like, well, why is this interesting? You know, this is so obvious kind of thing. So you have this kind of, it's just that it, it became like this kind of dogma within psychology, and we, we tried to break this dogma. So a bunch of people in the lab have worked on this over the years. Uh, people in the lab working on this now are in blue, and most people uh, have moved on. So Mark disposed, displaced me. He has now my job uh, at, at New College. He's in experimental psychology, and he's played a major role in some of these things. So the first thing that we did was a really, really straightforward, simple task, is we just kind of presented people um, with four colors, and then at the end, we, we just asked people to say, was this color part of the array? 50-50. So it was 50% chance of present absent. Uh, and like people had done before in some trials, uh, this is on rogue here, this is one of these uh, map PCs. That's, oh, sorry, it's not a glitch. This is <laughs> a um, so in some tasks, we just actually, some trials, we just gave a cue before that says, you know, if, you, if the item were to be there, it's most likely to be at a certain location. And we knew these pre-cues, so we've been using unattention forever. We know that works really well. But the thing that we did that people hadn't done before is we also use what we called retro cues, or retroactively predictive cues, or retrodictive cues, um, where we present the array, the array would go away, and only after more than a second later, when there's no iconic thing, there's no, no you know, after image, nothing like that, it's all <coughs> in your memory, we then gave a cue that indicated the location of the item or the item to be there. This still doesn't tell you how to respond, yes or no, it just says if it's, if it's there, you know, you, you do well to remember this one as opposed to any of the other ones. And um, we ran like three different versions of this experiment in our first paper. Um, and in this case, people are able to orient their attention back to their memory. And the question is whether would this would improve their behavior. <coughs> and the effects were really startling because, yes, this could really help behavior. And it did it as much as the pre-cues. So here's the neutral case where we gave people no information. We gave them neutral cues before and after. And surprisingly, you may think that people should be much better at this task, but you know, your working memory is even more limited than your perception. So people are only about 70% accurate on just seeing whether this one particular color was present or absent. Um, if you give them a, a good cue before, then they go up to about you know, more than 80% accurate. And if you misguide them, they get worse. And the same thing happens with the retro cue. And there's no significant difference between this amount of benefit here. So it suggests that people are able to orient their attention in their memories also to pick out relevant things. And so this prioritization, uh, selection, and inhibition of relevant and irrelevant things keeps going on. 
So fast forward to, we've done a load of studies like this with controlling for several aspects. Um, several people tried to show that we were wrong and have replicated us, which is really nice. And this is kind of actually now uh, quite an active uh, field. So this is just a recent version of a very similar experiment that we've run now using MEG to try to figure out um, well, the neural mechanisms behind some of these effects. So in this case, again, we have pre-cues, an array, uh, of items, and here the task people are, are represented with one item and they have to say whether it's been or, uh, rotated clockwise or counterclockwise. So this builds on some of the tasks that Masood and, uh, and Paul Bayes have developed, like they just uh, sort of more sensitive tasks to measure not just whether something's in working memory, but with what precision is it coded in working memory. So we have these pre-cues and then we have retro-cues. Um, and here, the, and, and we had neutral cues. So the neutral cues, uh, this is the psychometric function, so people are worse. So he, here is their likelihood of them saying that something was um, uh, clockwise when the thing was anti-clockwise and clockwise. So you see that people are about you know, 70% at best when they have neutral cues. And then pre-cues and retro-cues are here in um, dark blue pre-cues and, and light blue retro-cues. You see that in both cases, they're significantly more accurate to say whether something has been rotated clockwise or anti-clockwise. Here is the reaction time distribution for these three conditions. So again, black is neutral. You see that there's more variability in the reaction times and they're overall slower. And believe it or not, here there are two separate lines for pre-Q and retro-Q showing that you have pretty much identical uh, advantages in, re in speed for picking up something depending if you have a pre-Q or retro-Q. And when we have tasks like this, we can also model, um, you know, is it that the, the sharpness of, their, of this response distribution that's improving, is it their precision of their memory that's improving? Or here we have a bunch of guess behaviors, is it that they're just guessing more often? Or we can also model to what extent they're actually reporting based on some other item. And if we do that, we can sort of show that the probability that the person is guessing goes way down with both, both types of cues the probability that they're guessing based on another object goes way down. The precision, the quality with which something is represented in your head improves a lot if you get a pre-cue. So if you get a pre-cue and you know that you're coding green, actually that representation is more precise. But if you get um, a, a retro-cue here, that representation of this item, that you don't all of a sudden like fabricate the right thing that you didn't see initially. So the, the precision doesn't go up as much here. And then we can see what's happening in the brain. And as I told you with, uh, with pre-cues, we have this change in alpha band activity related to change of excitability in visual areas. And with what happens in retro-cues is actually the same thing happens. Um, but it's a very dynamic process. So if you get a retro-cue, what happens is you can see in the alpha range, which is between 8 and 12 hertz, you see that it goes down in the contralateral side, which is the, uh, the side of the visual system that's actually helping to code those working memory representations. So you have this uh, relative contralateral desynchronization, ipsilateral increase of alpha, and it's very short-lived. So it happens like it's a very punctate process, and if we look at it a bit more carefully, um, you see for the pre-cues you have this, again, alpha preparing the system to pick up the right uh, event here. Uh, and then alpha goes up, we can localize this to the visual occipital areas. This is MEG, so this, the, the uh, spatial 
um, localization isn't as good as MR, but you can still see this is kind of visual areas. You have this change in excitability of visual areas. We can show that this state of excitability is the same as when the person is perceiving a stimulus in that location. So we do these classification um, correlational analysis to show that um, the state of attending something is like the state of seeing something in that location. And then we see, um, and, and once you have the pre-cue, you see that you get into this state of attention and you hold it there. You're anticipating until the array actually comes. With the retro-cue, you have the same process, but it's much more dynamic. So what happens is, in retro-cue, you also have the same pattern of change in excitability in visual cortex, but it's short-lived. Uh, and this, for working memory aficionados, is in and of itself this really interesting aspect about the nature of working memory, the nature of, because some people actually think that working memory is just like the continual focus of attention to maintain something, and this suggests that it's actually a much more dynamic process. You're kind of changing excitability, picking up, reading something out, but that you don't have to keep the brain in this like humming state for very long. And we can actually also measure the dynamics of this. Uh, so here we just look, uh, we take half the trials and then we compare to the other half of the trials like activity at any given point in time, how similar is it to activity at that time in the diagonal, but at every other point in time. And here you see that with pre-cues, um, once you, you get this, you have this dynamic early stage, but then you're like, you stay in this like rumbling, this, the brain is just kind of always in that state of anticipation. And with these retro cues, you have this dynamic process, which is the state at which the brain is, is changing all the time, but it's consistent you know, across the, the trials. Okay, so um, just a, a quick note to say, people, uh, I've, I've become very interested as I've gotten older, like of what, you know, in attention, in aging, uh, and also as a, to look at marker of healthy versus less healthy aging, because attention kind of includes like the or orchestration of large-scale systems operating on, um, on our sensory systems and, and memory systems, and I think it's a good model to, to look at changes in attention for when large-scale models are degenerating. And people have proposed already, there are just only a couple studies showing that actually older people, they can't orient attention, you know, they can't orient attention to working memory, they're bad at orienting attention in time, they're bad at, so uh, we actually ran a study looking at a bunch of older participants, more than 60 people, with the same kind of task that I just showed you. And just to say that in our hands, luckily, our oldies are really good. They also show the same effects as the younger participants. And in fact, it, when we, we look at their patterns of brain activity, we see that it's actually the people with the fastest, the most dynamic, quick pickup effects in this alpha thing that are doing really well, are benefiting a lot from these attentional cues, and the people who benefit less have this kind of more sluggish, more tonic response. So anyway, this just kind of, and this is a platform for looking a lot of uh, disordered uh, attention and neurodegeneration. So this is kind of the first uh, bit, just saying that you know, our top-down biases, they're not just happening, not just acting out there, they're also acting in, in here, in our, in our short-term memories. These, these biases are dynamic. Um, oscillations, really interesting, um, interesting set of neural markers that are sort of showing these changes in excitability. Um, I haven't shown you about the control networks, but we also can see some of the control networks involved in this process and that we have this preservation in aging. Okay, so step two is to just tell you that, uh, you know, even though in the, according to the standard model, all these biases are operating through our receptive field properties, that maybe that's not always necessarily the case. 
So even if I don't finish my sentence, it doesn't matter because you know what I'm going to. So even like you might have already anticipated something about the meaning or the words that I might use. We don't have meaning receptive fields. We don't have word receptive fields in the brain. So basically, we've kind of become interested in understanding whether these kind of other types of representations that go beyond just receptive field coding might require population coding, might also serve as a basis of biases. We've done a few different bits of work in the lab, but the thing that, uh, that we've worked on the most is this idea that we can also anticipate things occurring in moments in time. Okay. So the question is whether we can extract predictable temporal structure in the environment that also enhances our performance and guides our adaptive behavior. So we've been working on this forever. So this goes like our first study here was in 98. So loads of people in the lab still working on this and other people who have moved on. And then I've worked also with some great collaborators over the year on some of these projects. Um, and still now in the field, like uh, the field of temporal expectations has really, really taken off in the last uh, 20 years since we've since we started working, it's not made, probably not all our credit, although I like to think it is. Uh, but uh, it's probably one of those things the, world, the, the field was ready to go dynamic, was ready to embrace the fourth dimension. So that we have like, it's really a really um, fantastic area to work in now, almost annoyingly overcrowded uh, already. Uh, but still, uh, we tend to think about temporal expectations as kind of a monolithic, as one thing. And people tend to study about the neural basis of temporal expectation. And it's becoming clear that, we, that there are varieties of temporal expectations, and we probably need to look at them separately, because they might not all rely on the same mechanism. So some examples of this are there's a lot of important rhythmic information out in the environment, sounds of crashing waves, um, wings beating, steps, the cadence of speech, prosody. Uh, and here, sort of more banal uh, example of the leaky faucet that you kind of know when it's supposed to happen next. Then there are things like that are just associations uh, here, illustrated by the traffic light that tells you now that the moment of go is is near. But for example, one really important and fundamental association is the timing between like lips moving and the sounds. So you have these multisensory relations among things which carry information. There are also things that are changing in probability as, the, as things evolve. So the more this little girl inflates this balloon, the more likely it is to pop. Um, and then, of course, we have complex sequential uh, uh, and complex rhythmic structure in the environment. So I'll just give you a, an example of a couple of studies that we've done that kind of have thrown in some interesting findings about this. So in this study, we use rhythms where like this little ball appears, moves across the screen, um, then it disappears behind the occluder, then it reappears with a little marker, and then you have to make a discrimination, in this case, for example, whether it's a plus or an X. And in this, what we can do in this kind of situation is we can manipulate whether people have or don't have temporal expectation for exactly when the ball is going to appear. So the case I showed you was kind of a PowerPoint flow-down version of a regular um, event in time. But we can also manipulate, so we can, we can have events happening at, with same intervals or with different intervals so people do or don't know exactly when the icon will appear. And then we can also manipulate the spatial expectation by keeping this a linear trajectory so that people know where it's going to appear or not providing them with a uh, spatial expectation about where it will appear. And if you do that, people can bootstrap expectations on a trial-by-trial -trial basis uh, and, you, and compare to the situation where they have neither spatial or temporal expectations either spatial or temporal expectations speed you up, and if you have both, you get a bit better. 
But the interesting thing happens in this task when we now record, if we, first we recorded EEG, this was done a while ago with an MSc, a neuroscience student, uh, Joanna Doherty. Um, when we record the um, visual response to this item reappearing under, after the occlusion in these various cases. So first of all, in temporal expectation, you might imagine like, well, if you have temporal expectation, what could you do in a perceptual system? Well, maybe you have like this jolt of arousal. You just like blast the whole system, just turns on just at the right moment. Maybe you could do that. Doesn't seem to be what happens in vision. So if, compared to the neutral condition in gray here, the temporal expectation on its own doesn't do diddly squat in the really early um, first response. It has a lot of later consequences, and there are a whole bunch of mechanisms that we've um, displayed there. But in this case, we don't have this strong, any strong modulation of the visual response. When we have spatial expectation, we see what we people have seen over and over again in spatial attention tasks, which is you have this enhancement of the visual response contralaterally to where the stimulus is. We have, in this case, a bigger P1 response. But now the really interesting thing that happened in this task is when you combine when you combine temporal expectations with spatial expectations, now that temporal information can boost the spatial attention effect enormously. So whereas time didn't just blast the whole visual system together, timing can work through the um, spatial receptive field enhancements to enhance the selection or prioritization of this item much further. So that was exciting, and we showed that there's this kind of synergy between spatial and temporal expectations. And then, many years later, uh, we had actually intended to do this in the first study, but we had coded the task wrong, and you know, we kind of screwed up the, the program. So we had to wait and do it again. Um, it's always good to do it again anyway, because you can replicate things. So uh, when Gustavo Roenko was a PhD, and then postdoc in the lab came, we kind of did a streamlined version of that same studies of Joanna's, uh, and we replicated all the behavioral findings. But then we were interested in seeing what happens in this moment of expectation, whether we can see temporal structuring of the anticipatory um, attentional state, sort of like. So we knew that with spatial attention in this task, because things have, are spatially predictable, we should see this alpha activity. And then we wondered, like, would there be any sort of temporal modulation of this? So here's what we found. This is a, an illustration of what happens during this occlusion period, so that there's the final ball before the occlusion, then there's this invisible jump under the occluder, and then the ball reappears. And this is the main effect that we see in, the, in, this, kind of, in this anticipatory state. And it's comparing when people have a rhythmic expectation minus when they have no rhythmic expectation. And, here's what, and you can see that the effect is very clear in the alpha band between 8 to 12 hertz. The alpha band is desynchronizing, but actually it's desynchronizing in tempo with this kind of temporal structure of the task. So you have the alpha kind of going down and down again, so that actually when the target occurs, the brain's in the, in the right, you know, in the kind of right state to pick up this information. So again, we have this strong interaction between spatial and temporal expectation, and we have this time of <coughs> expectation effects. We've done the same now with with um, cues, so we have this task. Um, so we became interested in understanding whether timing, maybe not always, but often works through these other types of excited, excitation states to boost them. Um, so we, wanted, we, we did a, a very simple study with cues where we have spatial cues that tell you where an item is that you have to perceive in order to make a very difficult uh, perceptual discrimination 
or you have a cue that just tells you which hand you have to be preparing to respond. So you have like, you know, preparation for perception, preparation for action. And the color of the cues carry temporal information as to when the item for perception or when the item for action will occur. So in, in the tasks when we have um, attention for perception, the temporal expectation gives us, uh, enhances our perceptual sensitivity further, so we get these nice D-prime effects, we also get reaction time speeding up. Then if we look in the brain at this moment here, what we see is we see the alpha band desynchronization according to the spatial cues, and then we, we can um, measure um, the topography on the head of activity elicited by left versus right cues, um, over all the different frequency bands and over time. And what we see if we just compare the topographies, so this is using sort of distance measures to compare the topographies. First of all, we see that early on, uh, after the cues appear, you have some differences that are probably just waveform related to the appearance of the left or right cue. But then in this still moment of anticipation, you kick in this alpha band activity between eight to 12 hertz. Uh, and this is when you're actually expecting the target to happen right here, and this is, in this condition, you're expecting the target to happen much later, and you can see this is stronger than here. And if you do um, a, a, a cluster-based uh, bootstrapping comparison, you can see that it isolates just this effect of alpha this, in, the, in anticipation of this. Um, so this kind of replicates our, our rhythmic effects. And then in MEG, we can also localize where these effects are, and this is just a um, corrected value showing this alpha in this case is being timed for preparing for perception. In the case of motor preparation, we see a complementary pattern. Now we get this task is really easy, so we don't get any accuracy effect. We get huge reaction time benefits if you're prepared for the target happening at that time. And now instead of alpha band, the relevant uh, oscillatory band in the brain is the beta band, which is related to motor excitability, and we see this change in the beta band, and we see it over more central uh, as opposed to posterior sensors. We see the same kind of pattern when we compare people preparing left or right hand. We have some early stuff related to the appearance of the cue, but then later on, you see this lower and higher beta band activity, and you see this, the typical motor excitation beta band higher up here much stronger when you're expecting to respond immediately than much later on. And then again, you get you isolate this beta band effect uh, here. And we can locate this to the relevant bits of the motor and premotor cortex. Okay, so um, I'm gonna skip this one. Just showing that the same thing happens in sequences. Okay, so this is just some examples that, you know, all of our biases are not just based on receptive fields. We actually don't think that there is any a priori receptive fields for time in the brain. Maybe receptive fields can gain temporal characteristics, but we don't have receptive fields just for 200 milliseconds or 400 milliseconds in absolute terms. So here we can see that our biases, they go beyond just receptive field properties. There's, they work in time. There are multiple types of temporal biases. These temporal biases interact with all different kinds of biases. Again, we see oscillations as a really interesting way of kind of changing excitability states uh, in the brain. And this is, if you do any study at all in neuroscience or psychology, inadvertently, I guarantee you that you are manipulating temporal expectations because you're always somehow forcing things to occur within certain ranges of time, and the brain is picking up on these, um, these regularities that you introduce in your task. <coughs> okay, so final bits, a bit short. Um, 
So I'm going to talk about how all, almost all of the attention literature talks about these goals or current goals or current states uh, as kind of being the, 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 the sources of all these biases. But we know, and actually we know for a very long time, that the, the most important thing that's actually throwing out predictions and changing our perception is not just our goals of here and now, but it's actually our long-term memory, our experience that we store in our long-term memory. So, for example, we have this beautiful uh, quote from von Helmholtz who says, reminiscences of previous experiences act in conjunction with the present sensations to produce the perceptual image. And I would actually argue that actually it is like memory and it's actually teaching us to perceive in the first place to a large extent. So we were interested in whether, you know, we can also measure these long-term memories uh, kind of changing our perception. And again, uh, although I say this has been really a neglected area of the field, there are some other great people working on this. Again, it's an area that's heating up now. So Marvin Chun has done some beautiful work on this, Moshe Bar, but now there's also lots of up-and-coming great groups like Nick Turk Brown in Princeton working in this area. So this is, again, becoming a really exciting area. And this, we've been working on this for a little bit less time, but still, a lot of um, people uh, in the lab have contributed to this, some of whom are, are here today. Okay, so the way we've done this um, experiment is we've, we first of all, our first step is like just make some bunch of new memories in people, arbitrary new memories, and then we want to test whether those memories have a perceptual consequence. <coughs> so how we, we make new memories, we make, bring people into the lab, we give them a scene, and we get them to look for a target, in this case a pre-designated target, and all scenes is to look for a little key, um, I believe this may be sort of uh, Chris Summerfield's parents' uh, house garage. Not, not, certainly my garage is very neat compared to this one. Uh, but this was, it was his sister who, who ran these first studies, Jen Summerfield, when she was doing her uh, detail in the lab. So in this case, if you haven't found your, the key yet, there's a little key hidden here. Uh, and then if you get another scene, and then you can look around, and then there's a key there, another one. If you've seen these before, you know exactly where the keys are, which kind of makes the point of the So we, we teach people 100 or 200 or 250 of these scene associations, the uh, target association, depending on what method we're using and how many trials we need. And we make sure that everything is counterbalanced. So, you know, this location might end up in the one condition for me and the opposite condition for me, and then there's another version where the key is somewhere else. So there's nothing about these scenes themselves or the specific locations that could be driving any of the effects I'll tell you about. So after we've kind of made these memories, people have learned about things, we send them away, they learn, they get better and better. They, uh, an uh, average Oxford undergraduate can learn 100 scenes easily in two hours. They get up to like 90, more than 95% correct on them. So then we bring people back and then we, we use these scenes without any target in them as cues, as memory cues. So in this task, for example, which Mark Stokes ran, it's a replication of Jen's original study. We present people with the, the, the scene cue, and then presumably they can activate the memory for the location. And then um, the whole scene appears again, either with or without the target embedded, and the people have to make a perceptual discrimination. And if you do this, people are much better at dis um, discriminating whether the target is present. If they, the target occurs at their remembered location, then if they haven't learned that location, or if it appears in the wrong location. So you have these really strong D prime effects. You also have very strong reaction time effects. And in this particular version, we ran this sort of for um, event-related fMRI. So we had these really long and jittered time intervals here, so we could isolate what's happening 
um, at this particular uh, Q phase. And what we see is we replicate um, memory-based orienting of attention, replicates the same pattern of orienting attention as usual uh, perceptual cues. So we have this frontal parietal network around IPS and frontal eye fields. But in addition, we kick in some areas that are specific to memory-based orienting, including areas that are involved in spatial contextual memories like hippocampus. And in Jen's previous study, which this one replicates, we actually showed that this hippocampal activation correlates on a trial-by-trial -trial basis with how much advantage you have on that trial for reaction time. So it correlates with your memory-based attention effect. And because this is like this really long interval, we can also see uh, what's happening, like the, we can see changes in excitability in visual cortex. So here, just seeing these scenes, and again, it's all counterbalanced, which one had a, you know, a target associated on the left or the right, so there's nothing about the scenes themselves that are different, but you can see that scenes that were associated with left targets or right targets, they start, act, they, they change excitability in visual cortex in, prepara in preparation for the target event to happen. So we did this, um, Jen did this originally within a, in a um, MRI study that Mark replicated, and we've also run a bunch of EEG studies. Um, and here we can show the, the scene for a very short period of time, then a bigger interval, then the, then the scene appears again with or without a cue. And again, when we show these scenes, depending on whether it was associated with a left or a right key, and people are anticipating a left or a right target, you get this pattern of alpha desynchronization again. So that again, the visual system goes into the right excitability state before the target occurs just based on your memory. And we actually, we've done a bunch of studies also showing that this process is super fast. You, even with a 50 millisecond difference, your memory is already boosting your perception really, really strongly. If you pitch memory-based orienting against like arrow cues and stuff, memory-based orienting always wins. It's like a really strong effect. And we think that this is happening all the time, that your memories are all the time changing the pickup of things based on your experience and based on obviously also on what's relevant to you. So just the final um, thing to show you is that we became interested in bringing this all together, uh, trying to think like, do our memories not only carry information about where relevant things are going to be and stuff, but do they also carry temporal information? Is this signal from memory also dynamic? So we've, we've done a temporal memory-based orienting of attention study where we actually get people to learn timings of targets in scenes. In this case, for example, a scene appears, then a little bomb appears, and it activates, and you have to deactivate the bomb super quickly or else it explodes, and so you kind of learn this. So in this case, some cases, um, you have a scene, the bomb will activate relatively soon, and you have to deactivate it, or in other scenes, it'll activate a bit later, and then you have to deactivate. Again, this is all kind of time warped by PowerPoint. Everything is really happening much faster um, in our experiments. Uh, and then the question is, you know, are your, uh, if people, we train people on this and we bring them back, are they using these memories then to also optimize uh, performance in these tasks? First thing we had to do in this task is test whether people could learn this stuff because no one had actually looked at these kind of temporal memories and learning of these temporal memories before. <coughs> so we showed that people can learn, they get faster and faster at deactivating the, the target. Um, and they, they, they did it over two days, four blocks, and then another three blocks. And you can see they get faster, and they retain some of it, and they're still faster. Then we tested them explicitly. Yes, they knew not so well after only four blocks, about 80% correct, whether this scene was associated with a short or a long interval. And by the end of training, they were more than 90% correct. 
But then when we bring them back and we just have the target appearing at the right or the wrong time that they learned or concordant or discordant, we see that we have uh, strong reaction time advantages for the targets occurring at the right time and also some sensitivity D-prime uh, measures are also improved. And then Andrea, who ran this, he was a visiting student from Brazil at the time. He's now set up his lab back in Brazil. He also actually ran this part of it in Brazil. He actually um, recorded EEG during this task. And I haven't shown you this, but one of the major markers of uh, temporal expectation when you just use normal cues in the EEG is this contingent negative variation potential, which is this, um, this kind of negative going potential that's related to the state of anticipation of the system. And here we're comparing um, scenes where people associated the, the target happening at this time here at the short interval or the target happening much later. And what happens is first the scene appears, then this black marker bomb appears, and then that carries temporal information as to when it'll activate. But you can see that people, even when just the scene appears before the little bomb appears, they're already getting into this state of greater preparation <coughs> or anticipation if they know that that scene is associated with a short interval target. And by the time then the bomb appears, you have this much stronger CNV, uh, and you're in much better <coughs> preparatory state if you're expecting the target to happen at that moment in time. And then Andre also took like um, markers of the quality of the memories that people formed on a trial-by-trial -trial basis, and then correlated it with various measures. So for example, if you divide the trials into um, quintiles as to when they, people were very best versus worst with their memories. So the better they are at their memories, the shorter their reaction times on this task. The better they are with the memories, the deeper the CNV becomes. And the deeper the CNV, um, sorry, the deeper the CNV, the faster their reaction times are. So suggesting that, you know, these kind of memories for the timing of things is influencing the state of preparation and your subsequent uh, response in this task. So that was the marathon. Um, so here, like just looking back at this uh, memory-based thing, we can see that yes, you know, our biases are not all confined to the here and now, but everything you do, everything you've learned is changing the way you pick up information from the world. So your memories are also guiding perceptions, probably doing this completely automatically most of the time without you having to sort of yourself have to play any mediating role in this. Um, so these memory-based expectations, they seem to also rely on these frontal parietal networks that we know from attention work, but in addition, they also kick in some memory-related areas in this process. Um, memory-based expectations, they modulate perception from early stages, and they can also be dynamic. And again, we see, uh, actually, um, yeah, we see sort of oscillations also playing a role in sort of putting the brain in the right state. Okay, so. Uh, this is kind of the broad canvas. We started with a standard model and sort of talked about uh, how attention also operates in working memory, how we have different kinds of um, biases and how they come also from not just working memory but also from our long-term memory. So to summarize, you know, I think uh, hopefully I at least gave you a primer to go and see if you convince yourself that there are these multiple slates, types, and sources of attentional biases. And uh, this process which are the proactive and dynamic prioritization of information processing, which we tend to call attention, maybe is best conceived of not as a domain or a set of psychological functions, but actually as really an intrinsic property of pretty much all of our perceptual and cognitive systems. So attention 
if you think of attention as these processes, they are kind of ubiquitous uh, in most of our sensory and perceptual, and perceptual and cognitive systems in the brain. So that's it. Thank you very much, and thanks to my fantastic lab and 